0: standing this morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through halfway through verse 6. You may even see in your Bibles a bit of a paragraph break. We'll read to that break halfway through verse 6 of Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. As we see the vision of the throne room of heaven, John begins, After this, I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, And round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. O Lord, our desire is not to be novel, to be wiser than we are, but to receive your word in the plainness with which it is always revealed to us so that we might know, and as you reveal in this book of Revelation what is in fact true of heaven and in light of what is true in heaven, true on earth, may we be a people who receive your word as it has been given to us and so moved and strengthened and guided by it, we pray in your name. Amen. Christ would have for us a glimpse that provides an understanding and an explanation of why things are on earth as they are. They are what they are because there is a reality and a glory of the throne room of heaven that influences all that we see and know and experience. And as we move into this new section, chapters 1 through 3, being a bit of a, a preamble to the glorious sights of the throne room of heaven, we need to be those who understand that there is a reality that influences what we see on earth. And that because worship is happening in heaven, change, strength, power, ministry, the preservation and building of the kingdom of Christ on earth is occurring, and that these two great realities are the things that we need to receive from Scripture as they are, and so be moved and encouraged and exhorted to labor for the coming of Christ's kingdom. This second vision of John expresses Christ's complete and sovereign control over everything in heaven and on earth. So what does he see? What are we to learn? Three points that I want to make this morning. You have a little bit of room in your bulletin for an outline. We didn't have a separate page. Three points. The first, what must soon be? What must soon be? Second, the whole nation of priests. The whole nation of priests. And then thirdly, finally, a holy throne. A holy throne. Let's look at the first point, what must soon be. This is another time in which this kind of statement is repeated. Look at verse 2. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Already in the book of Revelation, John is told that something is going to happen, and that thing will happen soon. My contention is that Christ, by His Spirit, is not telling us of His second coming at the end of the millennium, but that Christ is speaking of His coming when He will judge Israel. The temple will be destroyed, and what will be established throughout all the earth is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and God's meeting with His people wherever they are found. And that this Communion that we share with the Godhead wherever we are found is an earthly expression of a heavenly fellowship that occurs as the saints are represented by the 24 elders seated upon the throne. Revelation and this apocalyptic literature is, yes, a bit mysterious. And it is for us at times... Difficult upon first glance to say, all right, I know what's happening here. But to see that this is not literal, but true, descriptive language that a man, not being God, having seen, given by the Spirit, reveals to us so that we may know what is happening within the confines and the limitation of covenantal human language. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you must understand the book of Leviticus. You must know your Old Testament. You must see that for centuries, millennia, Christ has been preparing his people to receive the hope of the book of Revelation through the images, the types, and the signs given in the tabernacle, the temple, the priestly garments, and all of those things that you say, what's the point of all this? so that you may understand this, the glory of Christ, the blessing of belonging to him, to know what it means now that there is this existing reality that the door between heaven and earth has been flung wide open. And here John is brought into the throne room. And so as we look at this idea of what must soon be it is a reality of an open door and a call to enter right now this isn't the door is opened for John and then shut behind him but look at verse 1 after this John says and behold a door standing open in heaven it is a reality that has existed since the day of Pentecost that the Spirit was poured out. And in fact, even prior to Pentecost, we see the glory of this door open that upon the death of Christ Jesus, and he says, it is finished, and the full weight of God's wrath was poured out upon him as the one who was covenantally responsible for our sins, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And there were dead people that came to life in Jerusalem, at the time of Christ's resurrection. This resurrection glory is the result of a door that now stands open. And we can go into it. And not only are we who are Christ's glorious, beloved, covenantal people welcome, but the reality of that door is not only do we go in, but something comes out. And what comes out of the throne of heaven is all the efficacious activity of the worship there. The worship of the church of heaven is missional, missiological. That is, it brings forth the saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the throne room of heaven, the worship of the saints and the exercise of the worship of the cherubim and the seraphim, all that is happening there is a cosmic supernatural engine for the powering of the church of Jesus Christ on earth. And that engine, that source of glory and power is inexhaustible and it cannot be confronted And if it is, Christ's kingdom will overrun and overrule any power that seeks to align itself against him. What that means is the church is and has been and will be victorious. You need to see this. You need to know this. This is what lies at the heart of not only my millennial position, but what ought to be your millennial position, and that is this. Whatever you want to call it, Nothing can stop the outpouring of Christ's power through the Holy Spirit, through his church, unto the furthering of the kingdom and the bringing in of the nations because the door is open. And no one, no one can close that door. And so what we are given here is essential but not literal information And the reason is because John beholds things that are so glorious and wonderful and inexhaustible in their depth, namely Christ and the Godhead who dwells within the person. For we read in the New Testament that all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily so that when we see Christ upon the throne, what we behold is the triune God upon the throne. And John has been given the language that we need by the Spirit to describe things that go beyond human language. I mean, even the stuff of earth, there are times where we struggle to outline and define even our own emotions, even the things that we have seen. How much more the glory of Christ. But why this vision? Why this scene? Because we need to understand that the glory of Christ upon the throne influences reality and shapes reality more than who sits in the Oval Office, who sits in the power centers of every nation on earth, bigger than the bullies in your life, bigger than your job, than your 75 years or 85, or even 95, or 105 years that God gives you, you are like this, Solomon says, your life is mist and it is vapor, but there is one whose kingdom knows no end, and he has opened the door, and there is full access not only to enter as we've been brought in, but to see the glory roll from out of and into the earth as it is in heaven. You can't stop it. It is an unstoppable force. And so because of all of this, there is something that will soon take place that is evidence of Christ's intention to continue with the Gentiles, what he began with the Jews, but because of their rejection, he wishes for the new covenant people, and they can be culturally or by blood, Jew or Gentile. That doesn't matter. What must matter or what matters is how we see, how we gain access into the throne room, and it is through the blood of Christ. And what must soon take place is the glory of Christ poured out on the earth. It requires the destruction of the temple. It requires a very clear judgment against the old covenant and the ushering in of the new. And even as Christ says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, it is not even in the mountain in Jerusalem where you will be gathered, Why? Because Christ knew he would come and destroy that temple so that you or I would never seek hope or the manifestation of the kingdom through the building or the establishment or now the rebuilding upon the temple on that temple mount. There is an eschatological perspective that grounds their hope in that. It's called premillennial dispensationalism. And they will not seek or they don't understand or their hope is that one day the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And for what reason? Well, what do they say? For the reestablishment of Old Testament sacrifices. Well, doesn't the book of Hebrews eliminate our understanding, our hope, our expectation that such barbaric practices will ever occur again? Of course it does. Because Christ has entered into the heavenly places once and for all by his own blood. And so what we see is this, a heavenly temple at the center of which sits Christ upon the throne and his once and for all sacrifice and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit has established a covenantal reality that will result in the healing of the nations and you and I are part of that. And for 2,000 years, the Spirit has been poured out upon the earth, and I don't know how much time remains, but as the Spirit is further poured out, and He goes to every corner of this world, and men and women and children are brought into the covenant of grace, the kingdom of Christ, all of that is happening because of what is going on in heaven. That is the motor, the engine, the reality that drives everything we see. The way Doug Kelly writes in his commentary is, above everything else in these chapters, it conveys this vision that God's personal power for the throne is in supreme control of everything that has ever been or ever will be allowed to happen anywhere in the universe, He is personally responsible. And as the one who is the great authority, Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Christ is the king of heaven. Christ is the king of earth. Satan is king of nothing. He is not the king. He is a contender to the throne. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, what does Christ say? Even now, the strong man, Who once was king of the earth, his power has been broken. And Christ has said, thank you very much, I will take the scepter. It is now mine. Does not Christ say this now that the strong man has been essentially bound? Christ has come into this world and by his spirit, he is ransacking, as it were, taking dominion of the kingdom that once belonged to the devil. The devil is on his way out. He's old news. He has no strength left that is not limited by the lordship of Christ Jesus, which means his kingdom is not only failing, it will fail, and Christ will receive all the glory. And the testimony of that glory is the presence of the elders around the throne. Let's go to the second point. We're looking at verses two now and through four. We read, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated upon the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Some of your Bibles may use a different word there. And round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. First, we see a throne in heaven. It is the center of all the activity. It is the throne of Christ Jesus who has been given full authority and enduring authority in heaven and on earth such that throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, we find two things happening. In heaven, worship on earth, the effect of that worship. Just an aside. If the church wishes to be effective in the world, she will worship. When she ceases to worship, she ceases to be effective. When you worship, you are effective. When you cease to be worshiping, you are ineffective. And when I say worship, I don't mean just Lord's Day worship, but that your life is devoted to the reality that Christ made you for himself. What is your chief end? It is to glorify or worship God and to enjoy him forever. And around the throne, the worship of the Lord has a mighty effect upon the earth. Later in chapter 8, we see the effect of the prayers of the saints. And not just the worship of the elders. Your worship has an effect. When people see you worshiping and transformed by the word of God, they will come and they will look at you and they will say, what is wrong with you? How can you have hope? Right now, in this day and age, the world is looking at the church and they say, what you're doing is dangerous. You're meeting for worship with unveiled faces. And we're saying we are engaged in an exercise that is more glorious, more essential than anything else. Even if it costs us our lives, even if it costs us our liberty, our freedom, we will not cease to worship. Because in the worship of the saints, what happens? Worshippers are made. It is how we multiply, it is how we express the glory of the kingdom, because that is what we exist for. And more on that in a little bit. And so, what we see because of this open door is that heaven is not some remote or removed place, but it is here. It is closer than you realize. It is a realm that is divided only by a sea of glass that is itself completely clear. I can't describe to you how it is here, and yet we cannot see it, other than that our sight is limited even by our own humanity. But what stands at the center of the cosmos, at the center of time, is a throne that endures forever It is a cosmic, eternal, glorious, royal place that is at Christ, seated upon the throne. And how is he described? And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, going back to that not literal, but descriptive. Isaiah writes in chapter 40, verse 25, the Lord is speaking, he says, to whom will you liken me or compare me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? If you were to see Christ and you endeavored to describe him, if you were not given the language that was needed by the Spirit, you would be like Job and you would say, I got nothing. I have nothing to say. My mind is utterly blown by the glory and the sight of Christ Jesus. And so these descriptive words are not literal, but they are symbolic, they are figurative, and they go back, they reach to Ezekiel and to the book of Exodus, and what we see there are jewels that recount to us the glory of the breastplate that the high priest would wear as he served in the tabernacle. Christ is identified as the great high priest of his people. And these precious stones that were literally woven into the breastplate of the high priest, Jasper, here Carnelian also called Sardius, Jasper was a kind of colorless jewel that looked like a diamond, and it refers to the glory of Christ in the new Jerusalem. We see that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 11, that Christ as the great high priest who suffered once and for all, now risen is incomparable in holiness and power. And though he is the high priest, he is the great high priest, the one whom all the priests pointed to. And as that high priest of the Old Testament put those things on, what God was doing as he was teaching his people what Christ would look like, what Christ would do. It's a preview. So go back and read your Old Testament. And what that will do is it will fill in for you some of these mysteries of the New Testament where you think, where did this come from? Christ is showing that he is the incomparable one, the holy high priest. And then there's Sardius, which was reddish in color. It was beautiful. And it indicates, even from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, that Christ is the most handsome and beautiful of the sons of men, and that he in his glory is radiant in his beauty. It's okay to use the word beautiful to describe Christ. It is not effeminate. Christ is Beautiful. And if you appreciate beauty, then you must understand where the source of all beauty comes from. It comes from the righteousness of Christ. And then a rainbow, like an emerald, another precious stone, and this almost like a halo. And the emerald indicates and represents the glory of God's covenant with men. Think of the rainbow. I will never Destroy the earth with a flood again. And Christ wears this covenant crown upon his head. That he himself is the king of the covenant. And so we say, with whom was the covenant of grace made? It was made with Christ and through Christ, his covenant people. Christ is the priest of the new and greater covenant. All of these things indicate who Christ is. And the blessing of the one who sits upon the throne is that around Christ's redeeming throne, there are these 24 lesser thrones upon which 24 elders sit. And this is who they are they are the elect representatives of the entire church of Christ, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 apostles. They represent God's covenant people before the throne. And while we are on earth, the entire body, the entire invisible church in time and space is represented by these 24 elders who are seated upon thrones, which means what? That you and I, we may be citizens of heavenly kingdoms, but we are royalty in heaven. We are princes and princesses. We are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, as Lewis calls them. And one day we will reign upon the throne of, in his books, Ker Peravel. He understood the glory and the identity of men. We were made to be rulers on earth. And this is what Adam and his wife were made to be, holy, royal priests. But they rejected that honorarium And in their sin they rebelled. And it is through Christ's blood that we are given back the inheritance of the kingdom. So that it is only through Christ that we are able to be in his presence and we are, through his work, royalty again. So why trade that for the garbage? You remember the story of the prodigal son? A wealthy father, a royal father and a son who hated the gift and the righteousness of his father's house. And so he went into the world and sowed his money and his rebellion, and he ended up eating the slop of pigs. Children, this is poop. Yes, you can snicker, but this is what sin is. Your sin is a feast of waste and refuse and garbage. And I can't think of a one of you that would choose a fine meal for poop. Pardon my French. I guess that's not really French. (laughs) It could be worse. And frankly, stronger language may ought to be used. When we are confronted with our sin, the prodigal son is eating the waste of the pigs themselves. But the glory that is ours is Christ's people. Not only are they seated upon thrones, but they are clothed in white garments, the righteousness of Christ. And they wear a crown given to us as victors, a crown that is not unlike Christ's. This is who we are. It is a sanctifying reality. It is an encouraging reality. It is an emboldening reality. Do not listen to the rulers of this world, when they endeavor to tell you who you are or what you can do. For you have a high king in heaven who calls you to live in reality of this great royal room and the great throne of Christ Jesus. Do not let anyone tell you that you are anything other in Christ Jesus than one who is seated upon the throne So let's then talk about the holy throne, thirdly. Last point. We see the glory of the mountain. Now, in understand understand the, the meeting place of men with God, it is right that we understand what the Old Testament is teaching us as to the nature of how we are brought into God's presence. And we see it in Creation. There is an act of giving, being given origin and existence, and that we are brought through the water, the presence of the Holy Spirit, fashioning us into or by God and brought into his holy presence for worship. Creation, we see this in the Exodus as Israel is delivered and then they are brought through the Red Sea, which is a picture of their baptism to God's holy mountain for worship. And really, this is all of the plan of redemption. We are made by God, we are consecrated through baptism, and we are brought into his holy presence for worship. We see a crystal sea here that is indicative of that place by which we are brought into and made holy. It is indicative of the covenant washing and how we are brought into the fellowship of the Godhead, and we are brought to the holy mountain of God, so that what is said here of the throne is similar in the language that we see in Ezekiel 9, uh, in Exodus chapter 19. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, Israel is brought to the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai, southeast of where they left Egypt. They went down to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, God says to the whole nation of Israel, come to the mountain, do not touch the mountain, put a fence up around the mountain so you don't touch it, but Moses, you come up on the mountain. And as Moses went up, it symbolizes, it's indicative of drawing near to the presence of Almighty God. The top of the mountain is like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple. It is like Eden itself, where God dwells and he calls men to go up to him except only one man. Because Moses, well, not only a type of Christ, was the, the leader, the prophet of, the judge of Israel. And he brought down from the presence of God covenantal documents, the Ten Commandments and all of the other instructions and law about the tabernacle and the temple and the society of Israel. God entered into a covenant. But some will say or think when Christ comes, that holy terror is diminished. And yet here in the book of Revelation, None of that glory, that terror, the rumblings of thunder, the flashing of lightning, it's all there. How then can the 24 elders live, exist, dwell in the presence of Christ? Because they have been made able to withstand the glory and not be consumed in judgment. How? Because of what comes from Christ, his shed blood. These 24 elders are washed, they are holy, and they belong there because of Christ's work upon the cross in his death and resurrection. And so, it is all the glory and power and terror of Sinai, but now we have been brought in because we have been made righteous. And because of this light and heat And power, it makes us a certain kind of people, and so we keep reading in verse 5, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, already in the book of Revelation, we read of the seven lampstands, and who are they? They are the seven churches. I will fill out more of the key, the sort of study key to the book of Revelation this week, but to recall the seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven spirits is the Holy Spirit in his fullness. But here we read of one sort of identifying body where the lampstands now torches are equated to the seven spirits. Now, commentators, like most commentators on the book of Revelation, rarely agree. Here is the argument I would make to you as the Holy Spirit has been sent by Christ into the churches, these lampstands have been lit ablaze by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the effect of the glory of the throne of Christ is those seven lampstands have been turned up to 11. And that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a body of Christ on earth, we are not just little lights, We are a burning, blazing heat, and we exist. What are torches for? We don't have torches. Why would you buy patio lights to light your patio? They're there not just for beauty, but for utility. These seven torches, which is not unlike the menorah of the temple What was the beauty, what was the facility of the menorah? To light the room. And why was that light there? Well, really for two purposes, to indicate from whom the church receives its light and then those who are ablaze to direct our light to the one who has lit us ablaze. It is the glorious exchange of receiving from Christ Jesus the fire of the Holy Spirit only to pay Him back lives of glory and honor and service unto Him. There is always within the worship of the saints an exchange, a dialogue. God gives us something and we give Him something. We are, in our being lit a fire by the glory and grace of Christ Jesus, to shine our light, and we glorify our Father who is in heaven, and that light is seen by the world, and they think, "Where? how do I become part of this great exchange? Because what the world worships, that which is not light, they embrace the darkness of their hearts. They seek to smolder, to cover, to quench the light of the gospel. And what we must do as the saints is crank the volume up. And the more we worship, the more glory of Christ is manifested throughout the world. Spirit-filled churches who are ablaze with the gospel of Christ Jesus. We bring glory to God, and we bring healing to the nations. And then we see the crystal sea. In the Old Testament, when the 70 elders had been invited up to the mountain after the covenant had been delivered, in Exodus chapter 24, they went up about halfway, 70 elders. And when they looked up from Sinai, they saw that the heavens were like a crystal sea. What did they see? They didn't see some strange cloud formation, some meteorological unique situation. They were gazing through the portal of the sky. We see this sort of tearing, this schizo is the word. Christ is in the Jordan River. He had just been baptized. And then there is this break between the fabric of time and space and glory and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. There is the glass sea. There is this glass ceiling Now, in the Old Testament, the perspective was one of looking up. Here, John is above that which is the crystal sea, and he sees down. He looks down upon it. And in this, we find the perfect encapsulation of the distinction of our own perspective between the Old Testament and that which was concealed in the revelation of the New Testament in Christ Jesus. This should be our perspective not of one hoping the covenant will be fulfilled and so looking to heaven, but as those who are represented by the 24 elders, we look down upon the earth through this new lens of Christ's resurrection glory. The whole perspective has changed. There is an open, clear, evident connection between heaven and earth, and so our salvation and our strength lie on the other side of the sea. S-E-A. And then what we see, as John reveals it to us, is a world that is utterly transformed by a kingdom that is not remote, but is ever-present, and looks closely. There is nothing that separates. It is this crystal sea. Our strength, our hope lies on the other side of the sea. And what we are calling men to do is to see that glorious vision and to be brought into the fellowship of the Godhead so that they might have that same triumphant perspective that Christ has come. Stop looking at the world like losers, like cowards, like those with no hope. And when I say losers, I'm not calling you a loser, like a middle school playground diss. Christ has won. You're winners, (laughs) which seems equally kind of, I don't know, simplistic. And that is why John writes, because when you're living in A.D. 70 or prior to A.D. 70, and you look at the Roman Empire and the heads of that horrific beast, you think, what will our future be? What will our future be? We can easily be cast into despair and to discord and to think, man, the future is bleak and dark. Who tells you this? Where does your perspective come from? We will survive the death of the republic. All human republics die. You know why they die? Because at the helm of human republics are tyrants and people who just want to be ruled and enslaved in sin. And kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And empires come and empires go. When the saints in Japan were suffering under the hand of the samurais. When the saints in Afghanistan are suffering at the hand of violent Muslims. When the saints in America are suffering at the hands of godless secular heathens who don't know their head from a hole in the ground. And we look at them and go, what are you thinking? We will survive it. And the only reason is, it's not because we're ornery. It's because we are redeemed. It's because even now we are before the throne of God and we are his beloved children. Let this new and glorious perspective become your own. Let's pray.